there's never, ever, ever been a better time to start a company than right now, ever. You have the desire to create financial freedom, but you also want to make a powerful, positive impact on the world. This podcast exists to tell the inspiring stories of men and women who have achieved both, people who do well and do good. Discover proof that individuals have the ability to make a massive impact. Brought to you by your host, Dorothy Ilson. Hey everyone, my name is Dorothy. I'm your host, and this is episode 18 of the Do Well and Do Good podcast. My guest today is Scott Paley. Scott works with experts and influencers to build magnetic brands and big online audiences, but he does it with an awesome twist in that his agency, Abstract Edge, is branded as digital marketing for do gooders. I knew I had to have Scott on the show because he has dedicated his career to helping nonprofits thrive, and the impact he is making on the world as a result is truly massive. He's also the co-founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, which has their doors open for new nonprofits now through this Thursday, the 25th. If you work for a nonprofit, listen up near the end of the episode for more details about that. Now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Scott. Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm so excited to have you here. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks, Dorothy. Let's kick it off. I want to take it way back to the beginning, actually all the way to your childhood. So set the stage for us, Scott. Could you share what beliefs about money, whether they be conscious or subconscious, that your family instilled in you growing up? Well, just to be grateful, we were very lucky that we were in a position where I I grew up in a relatively affluent area. Know, upper middle class, you know, we didn't really want for things, which, which is just an amazingly lucky position to be in growing up. You know, I, I would say that we were able to do things like take a family vacation somewhere. You know, the, the school that I grew up in had, had very good resources, it was public school, but it was, you know, well equipped. And so I was, I was just very lucky. I mean, my, my parents, for example, were in a position to buy me a computer when I was in high school. And that made a huge difference for me. If, I, I wonder sometimes if not for that, if I hadn't had that opportunity, I don't know that I'd be doing what I'm doing today. I don't know that I would have gone into a technology-related field. I mean, there, there's a pretty direct line. Absolutely. Well, in the bio you sent me, you actually listed some of your most closely held values. And it included integrity, fairness, being a great dad, but it also included abundance. So could you tell me more about that last one and why it makes the list for you? My feeling about abundance versus scarcity is that we tend to be wired to compete. We tend to want to get the edge on the next person to really think about what's best for me. But the truth of the matter is that when you come to a partnership or if you come to a you know, opportunity thinking, well, how can I collaborate with others to make the thing that we are doing the best it can possibly be? Then what's going to end up happening is you are probably going to end up personally better off in the end anyway. And everybody involved with it is. Not so long ago, I actually posted, there's, a, um, there's a, another community, online community that I'm co-owner in called the Nonprofit Leadership Lab that is for the leaders of primarily of smaller nonprofits, both on the board and staff sides. And in the online community, I had posted recently something along the lines of, if you're not sure what to do, 
think about what's best for the mission, then you'll know what to do. And this came up because we get questions all the time from people who are complaining about something another organization has done or something, you know, even internally to the organization, what a board member did or some staffer, and they're upset about it. And they want to know how they should react to that, how, what they should do about it. And what I always say is, if you think about what's going to be best for the mission, the cause that you're trying to achieve, not so much what's best necessarily for your specific organization or for you personally, that's the right thing to do. That's what you should do. I completely agree. And I think that there is almost this binary you know, back and forth of, you know, do you have an abundance mindset or do you have a scarcity mindset? And when you're operating from a scarcity mindset, it's very tough to go into situations, you know, open to collaboration and open to you know, what is ultimately going to be best for the entire group. And it is so true that, you know, a rising tide raises all ships. And if you have an abundance mindset, you're going to be much more open to opportunities. You're going to you know, identify those opportunities when they show up in front of you. And really, you're ultimately going to, you're going to allow the universe to bring in more for you in a way that is you know, congruent with the good of, of everyone. And so I think that it is so important for us to take any of these limiting beliefs that we have around money that you know, might be causing a scarcity mindset and really do the work that's involved to rewrite those. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the other thing is you're going to end up with better relationships. You're going to be a happier person. Mm-hmm. If you think about how do I grow the pie as opposed to how do I maximize my share of the pie, in the end, you're going to have a bigger piece of pie anyway. I love that analogy. Well, so Scott, tell us your story. Where did your career start? You know, how did it evolve into eventually founding Abstract Edge? In college, my, I studied engineering and I was also, <laughs> I was involved, uh, I sang in an acapella group. And this was right about the time that the World Wide Web became a thing. So we're talking early 90s. And I decided, oh, it'd be so cool to for our group to have a website. So I taught myself HTML and I taught myself how to build a website. And there, you know, this was probably one of the first 500 websites that there were, uh, was for this acapella group. It was really like the first, one of the first college extracurricular groups, or, you know, websites that existed. So I had to figure a lot of this stuff out. But one of the things I did figure out was I really enjoyed building this stuff. And so that became sort of the digital technology stuff became the direction that I ended up going in. And then after college, I worked for several years at a large enterprise software company doing a whole lot of different kinds of jobs from technical support, QA testing, software development. And what ended up happening though is I got pulled into a group that was responsible for creating technical demos for marketing and sales purposes. So I would get access to whatever the most cutting edge, you know, bleeding edge stuff that the company was producing. And I would need to think really hard about what is it that a buyer is going to really care about from their perspective. 
And so it started me on my path to thinking about things like customer avatars and, you know, thinking in the point of view of the audience and what they're going to really care about. And then how do you tell a story to them that makes what you are selling a no-brainer? And so I had to construct these interactive demonstrations And yes, I was coming at it from the technical perspective, but to do a really great job, I had to start learning marketing. And what I found was a couple things. One is I was pretty good at it. And the other was I really enjoyed it. So here we are, it's 1999 now, and dot-com boom is happening. And I have a whole lot of friends who've left their corporate jobs to start dot-coms, and some of them are even making a whole lot of money. Well, They've raised a whole lot of money. They're not necessarily making a whole lot of money. (laughs) There is a difference. (laughs) Yes. But they're all seemingly doing really well, and it's all very exciting. And so I was sitting at a table with a couple of, well, colleagues, for lack of a better term, and and we're all sort of complaining about our jobs, you know, typical stuff. And someone said, well, you're a tech guy talking to me. And one of the other guys, you're, you're a business guy and you're a, you're a design guy. Why don't you guys start a company building websites? And we kind of all looked at each other and we said, yeah, why, why don't we do that? And so we ended up all quitting our jobs. And in the year, two, uh, year 2000, we started the company. So it's, it's been going now for, actually, I'm sorry, in, in 1999, we started the company. So this was, this was in 1998 we had this conversation. So yeah, we've been, we've been doing this now for... 19 years, which is quite a ride. That's an amazing story. And so you made this massive pivot from studying electrical engineering to eventually ending up building websites and and studying marketing. So was that a just sort of natural progression that you fell into? Or was there a moment where you decided, you know, okay, I'm not going to be an engineer. I'm going to go do this instead. Well, I think the moment was, so when we first started the company, I still thought of this as we're a web design and development company. And I thought of it very tactically in that people were going to hire us to build their corporate websites. That was our vision when we started. We didn't know what that meant. We didn't know who exactly was going to do this. And so when we were first starting, we were willing to take on almost anything that we didn't have a problem with. So this is where you have to be open to things because sometimes fate plays a huge role in something. And we basically had a couple tiny, tiny, tiny clients, if you want to even call them that, when we were starting out, they were really projects we were doing practically pro bono just to be able to prove ourselves, to be able to say, hey, we can do this and then be able to go into uh, companies and, and sell it. And so we get a call one of my partners had a, a colleague at his former company that knew someone who was looking for someone who could build them a website super cheap. And so we said, well, we might be able to do that. So this woman, Donna, gave us a call. And we spoke to her. And, and what her vision was, was that she wanted to have a march on Washington nine months out. And the cause was that this was shortly after there had been a whole bunch of school shootings, including Columbine and others. Sad how nothing changes. But 
she wanted to have this march on Washington to try to fight for stronger common sense gun laws. Okay. And she wanted to call it the Million Mom March. But between you and me and all your listeners, uh, she also told us, honestly, if I could get a few thousand people to march, that would be like just phenomenal. I know I'm calling it the Million Mom March, but I don't expect anything like a million people. That's crazy. And the thing to consider is she had no real financial backing. It was just her and a couple friends who were starting this thing, starting this movement from scratch. And this was before there was Facebook. There was before any sort of social media. So how exactly do you start a movement and get a whole lot of people to take an offline action? And by the way, to do this in nine months, Mm -hmm. no idea. Of course, we didn't say that. Oh, sure. Yeah, we'll we'll help you figure this out. And she had like no budget. So we kind of didn't feel bad because we were probably the only people on the planet who were willing to even work with them on this. So we had to figure it all out from scratch. Fast forward nine months, 750,000 people marched on Washington. It was an enormous, enormous success. And it changed our direction in a major way because all of a sudden we had become something of an expert on building online grassroots movements. And so we had all of these nonprofit organizations that were coming to us looking for help. Well, wow, you did this for them. How can you do something like that for us? And so we started getting all of this inbound inquiry from a whole lot of different nonprofits. And ever since, the nonprofit industry has been approximately half of our business. And these days, it's even higher than that. So that, that's just how we got started. Now, going back to your original question, which was how I personally sort of came into marketing, again, what we started realizing is that being tactical, just sort of building websites based on what a company or a nonprofit organization tells us they want is not really acting in the best interest of the organization. Where we can really add value is to help them figure out how to best leverage a digital platform, a website, or whatever it is to help them achieve their broader goals. But that required a much deeper understanding of business. That required a much deeper understanding of marketing. And then if you fast forward a a bit, in around 2010, 2011, the whole concept of content marketing and inbound marketing started getting really big. And we realized, you know, we never, we didn't coin it, but this is essentially what we've been doing for a long time. This is the approach we've been taking with our clients. And so we jumped on that bandwagon pretty early. And for me personally, I realized how interesting it was and how much meat there was there, how much, how deep you could really get with it. Um, and ever since, I would say for the last eight, nine years, my, my personal primary focus has been much more on the marketing side than on the tech side. Well, so Scott, a lot of our listeners are in the position of, you know, they work in a nine to five, but they either have entre- entrepreneurial ambitions or, you know, they, they want to do something on their own. And so looking back at that time when, you know, you all quit your job to start Abstract Edge, what were the emotions running through your head? What were those you know, first few months after leaving your job like for you? It was scary, honestly. I mean, you know, there's a certain comfort to waking up in the morning and going to your job that ultimately 
yes, you want to do a good job. Yes, you're a responsible human being. Yes, you, you want people to be happy with you and you want to feel like you earned your paycheck. But you come home at the end of the day and it's not that hard to separate. It's not that hard, really, certainly compared to when you own your own business. When you own your own business, it is really difficult to put away the company. You're thinking about it all the time. And you really need to put things in place for yourself personally so that you can have some semblance of a work-life balance. Now, the thing is, when you love what you do, it doesn't always feel like work. But when you own a business, you're responsible for everything that goes on. And even if you have a team, even if you have very well-defined roles and you have great people working with you, ultimately, you as the business owner are still responsible for everything that's happening. And so it's really hard. It's really hard to compartmentalize that. When I first started the company, I was in a good position in that for four or about four years, I had worked at this big software company and I hadn't spent a lot during that period. I was living fairly frugally and that was pretty intentional because I wanted to start to put away some money so that I'd have more choice and more options in my life. And so after four years, I had built up enough that I had something of a runway. I was out of any kind of debt at that point. You know, I was renting an apartment. I didn't have a mortgage. I think I'd paid off my car at that point. So I was in a pretty good position when we started it that I could go some months, probably up to about a year without making any real money, which gives you a certain level of ability to take risks. The other thing is I wasn't married at that time. I didn't have any kids. My own personal responsibilities were lower. There's no question that if I had been working, let's say, all of this time at a, at a regular nine-to-five kind of job, and that now I wanted to quit and start a company, it would feel much riskier, much, much riskier because I have bigger responsibilities. And you have to look at your own personal situation. Now, the flip side of that is that my, my wife works and you know she makes a salary. And so you know we have some safety net in that regard. It's not like I'm the sole breadwinner. So you have to look at your own personal situation and assess your personal risk. Looking back, it's funny because it felt so risky to quit my job and start a company, but there really wasn't that much risk. What was the worst thing that was going to happen? The worst thing that was going to happen was we weren't going to be able to sell projects. It was going to at some point be a failure, quote unquote. We would have learned a ton and I would have gotten another job somewhere, or I would have started some other company that maybe that one would have been successful from what, all the things that we had learned. I would have what, lost several months or a year, up to a year of income. Okay. Would that have had any major impact on my life today? Probably not. So, you know, it's, it's funny how things that feel like such a big deal in the moment, so often when you look back, you think, ah, if I could tell my younger self, <laughs> you know, I, 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 would, I would say, just calm down. Don't be so stressed out about this. Yeah, this is- chill out. 
I think there's so many important things in what you said, and I'll point out a couple of them. You, you talked about living frugally at, when you did have your nine to five and really being able to save money. And I think that we've all heard this advice of pay yourself first. But for a lot of us, you know, we, we know that intuitively, rationally, we should be doing that. But in practice, it's very easy not to do. And so I didn't start budgeting in any real sense until I started my business and I realized like this money's coming in and where is it going? I have no idea. And I wish that I had done that when I was still in my job because when I got to the point where I quit my job, I didn't really have any savings to to lean back on. And so it was a much more stressful situation than it could have been otherwise. But I think the other really incredible thing that you said is is about the perception of risk and the advantages to to doing some of these things you know when you don't have a ton of you know personal responsibilities you know you don't have kids that you you know need to support and and all of these obligations it's often our perception of the risk in taking a big leap like that is often just so colored by everyone else's judgments and the outside noise. And when you realize that, you know, okay, if this doesn't work out, I'll go get a job, which is, you know, a situation that is, you know, easily overcome. You realize that the risk really isn't that great if you are starting a business that doesn't require a ton of capital up front, which in 2018, the opportunities for that are endless. There's never, ever, ever been a better time to start a company than right now, ever. Because the, the cost of doing so, the reach that you can have, you can create a global business with global distribution practically overnight. I'll give you an example. So one of my clients uh, who is an expert in nonprofit leadership, her name is Joan Gary. So we started working together, I think it was in late 2012. And at the time, she had a part-time consulting practice. Her kids were about, her, her youngest kid was about to leave for college. And she really wanted to grow this into like a real business, full-time consulting practice. And she came to me, she had been referred because she had mentioned to someone, hey, I'm going to need a website, a nicely designed website for this business, business. And she asked if we could create this nicely designed website for her business. And what I told her is, you're thinking much, much too small. Think for a moment, what would it mean for your business if you had a national or even global platform that pretty much anywhere you went in the United States, that if you went to any nonprofit conference, that everyone there knew your name, knew exactly who you were, and wanted to talk to you wanted to get your advice, saw you as the authority in this space, what would that mean in terms of your ability to land new clients, the type of clients you want to work with, et cetera? She said, wow, well, that would be amazing. I would, I mean, that would be, that would completely transform my business. That would be, that would be great. Is that possible? I said, well, yes, absolutely, it's possible. And so we started blogging, and then later we started podcasting. And over the course of several years, she really has become one of the best-known uh, leaders in the nonprofit leadership space. 
she was able to get a book deal. She was able to, she was actually on a, a network television show for a while called Give on NBC. And so all of these different opportunities came about and she got to the point where there were so many people that, and nonprofits that wanted to, to get her advice and do business with her. And in the early days of her blog, she took the time to respond to every single person who would reach out to her. But eventually that became impossible. She was way too busy. And it got to the point where, you know, again, in this sort of back to what we were talking about earlier about abundance and scarcity, she saw that she was now in a position where she could have a real influence and impact on the sector as a whole, the nonprofit sector. But she didn't have time. And how do you now leverage your scarcest resource, which is your own personal time? You can always find ways to make more money. You can't find ways to create more time for yourself, period. There are 24 hours in a day, and that's it. So we started discussing, well, you know, what do we do? She was getting frustrated. And, and in part, she was frustrated because there were so many people that really needed her help that A, could never afford her anymore, and B, she didn't have the time, even if they could afford her. So I came to her with an idea, which was, well, what if we created together, and I, I, was, I thought this was such a great idea, I wanted to partner with her on it, um, a membership site, which we called the Nonprofit Leadership Lab. So this was in around 2016, beginning of 2016 or the end of 2015. Through 2016, we started doing deep dives into audience profiles, and, and we came up with you know, a marketing plan. We built out the site. in 2000, And then her book launched, so things went on hold for a while. And Anyway, so we got to 2017, and in May of 2017, we launched. Now, the cost of the entire thing was, I mean, this was not millions of dollars of upfront capital by any stretch. Was it thousands? Yes, it was thousands. But it was not, you know, it was completely doable in terms of the initial investment. That investment was completely paid back within just the first few months of being in business and launching. So we launched in May of 2017. And our home run number, I mean, we were hoping for 300 people. And our home run number was 500 members when we launched. When we launched it, and, and there was only a one-week period where you could sign up. In that initial launch, almost a thousand people signed up, wow. which was amazing, 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 amazing. So the marketing plan worked great, huge success. We built this amazing community. It's had about 96% monthly retention. <laughs> and what that for us is that people who join love it. And you look, a lot of the people who leave, they've left the nonprofit sector, they lost their job. You know, they, a lot of these people are, are paying for it themselves and they decide they just can't afford it. Um, but we're talking about a tiny number of people that are leaving each month. And so this thing has been an enormous, enormously valuable for the nonprofit sector. We've done two more launches since then and in total have brought in more than 2,500 members over those three launches. We're opening the doors again in October. And actually, I, I guess this is the point where I should plug this. <laughs> so for any, any listeners out there that are involved in nonprofits or know people involved in nonprofits, check out thrivingnonprofit.org, which 
From there, um, Joan is going to be giving a free workshop called How to Build a Thriving Nonprofit. And it starts on October 16th. You can sign up at thrivingnonprofit.org. And ultimately, we'll introduce the Nonprofit Leadership Lab and sort of the ongoing opportunity to be involved in that, if that's right for you. The, the bigger point to answer the, the question was, there's no better time to start a business. We started a business together that cost thousands of dollars, not millions of dollars. And overnight, this thing was bringing in enough revenue that we made all of our money back within just a few months. And it was profitable four months in, it was already profitable. And it's just profit since, which is an amazing thing. And, and it's allowed us to have this huge reach. And we have people who are members, and we have a, a couple members from Kenya. We have members from, I mean, just all over the world. I mean, yes, like 90% are from, are, are from the US and Canada, but we have members literally from you know, every corner of the globe. We started this just, it was just a couple people, a few people started this company for practically no money. And we have a global reach that is impacting thousands of people. Think about that practically overnight, which is an amazing thing. Well, I think what's so incredible about that is when you look at these membership communities, you know, not only is it amazing for you as an entrepreneur because you can create these assets, you know, once and then distribute them to, you know, an unlimited number of people. So just from a business model perspective, it makes a lot of sense. But then also when you're thinking about your mission and, and Joan's mission to help nonprofits thrive, you are able to impact so many more nonprofits in a really powerful way than you ever could working with them one-on-one. Absolutely true. That's absolutely right. So what advice would you give to someone who is in this situation of, you know, they're, they're in a nine to five, they have entrepreneurial ambitions, but they just don't know what to do or, or really where to start? What advice would you give that person? Well, so let me ask you a question so I can answer that a little bit more specifically. So you're in a nine to five, you have entrepreneurial ambitions. I guess it depends what kind of entrepreneurial ambitions you have. So I know plenty of people who have some, you know, some idea to build some world changing thing that will require significant capital scale. And for them, you know, this is more the the venture capital approach and, and, but you don't need to do that anymore. You can I think it comes down to, do you want to create something that is a potential billion dollar kind of company that is going to be so much bigger than you? That's a very different kind of thing than I want to build, I'm entrepreneurial and I want to build a lifestyle kind of business that is going to help me make more money, hopefully with less stress and have a a significant impact on the world. And so if it's the second, that we're talking about here, which is more the path that I personally have taken, then first off, I would say, remember that there's never been an easier time to do this. There are no shortage of fantastic online courses available that can help you understand how to grow and market an online business. I'm involved in one called Tribe that is terrific. It's not the only one I'm involved with, but that's, that's the one I'm most involved with. Tribe is specifically about growing a membership type of business. So study, but 
think about partnering. This is the other thing is if you have an expertise in a specific area, there's something you're passionate about, there's something you want to share with the world, and you think there might be a chance to monetize that, great. But there's so much that goes on behind the scenes of a business like this. And what I have really come to understand is that the most successful digital properties like this, the expert focuses on content and community and, you know, growing and building and nurturing their community and leaves all the rest of it to their partners. Because if you try to do it all yourself, it's not that you can't. I know plenty of people who have done it all themselves, some very successfully, but it's very stressful and you just cannot possibly be great at everything. There's no way that you can be great at your expertise, continue to develop that, build your community, do all the marketing, do all the design work, do all the technology, do, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there's just so many little things and the nuances can make all the difference in the success or failure. But if you're the front person, if you're the expert, the other thing I want to say is make sure that, first of all, that you pick the right partner, but secondly, that you then appreciate your partner because you're the one who's in the front. You're the one who's getting all the accolades, right? You're the one who everyone is telling is so great if, you're, you know, if, it's, if it's a successful thing and everyone knows who you are. And it would be very easy to underappreciate or take for granted the people who are making it all happen behind the scenes, you know, backstage. And I've seen this happen and it's really unfortunate and it usually leads to certainly a, a, a very lack of positive momentum. Yeah. It's very important to devote a lot of energy to the partnership, not just to how do I grow the business. Picking the right partner is such a key part of this. And you you talked about this a little bit, you know, really at the end of the day, I think the mistake that a lot of people make is they'll partner with their best friend or, you know, someone who they get along with really well because they're very similar. But when you partner with someone who's very similar to you, it leads to butting heads. It leads to, uh, you know, a really messy division of responsibilities. And ultimately, if you have the same strengths, you're not going to be able to move nearly as fast as if you partner with someone who has opposite strengths from yours. And you can really bring the best of those two worlds together to make something happen. Yeah, I think there are certain aspects where it's good to have some similarities. So for example, if you are widely divergent on the way you think about the overall business strategy, that could be a problem. You want to make sure you're on the same page about the vision and how to move forward. But when it comes to, you know, creating content, for example, or if it comes to, you know, if, if you have two people who are strong in the same areas and weak in the same areas, to your point, then you're not covering up those weaknesses. You're not dealing with them. And the, the better thing is to let people focus on their strengths and not have to try to overcome their weaknesses. They're overcoming their weaknesses because of the partnership. And that ultimately is going to lead to more success. So I do generally agree with you that you definitely want to have a partnership with complementary skills. 
but there are certain aspects like strategy where you're going to want to be on the same page. That's an important caveat. And so I'm so glad you brought that up. I completely agree. Well, so Scott, thank you for everything that you've shared with us today. Unfortunately, we are running out of time. So I'd like to move into what I call the impact round. So I'm going to ask you a series of short questions and I'd like for you to just respond with the first answer that pops into your head. You ready? Let's do it. Who has been the most impactful person in your journey to do well and achieve financial success? That probably would be my brother, actually. Was, I will say, one of the partners who co-founded our company. He left the company a long time ago to, to pursue other things. But right off the bat, he brought values of integrity, a focus on that and a desire to work on projects that would have a positive impact on the world, not just make us money, but with a business focus to make sure that everything we were doing was going to be profitable so that we could stay in business because it doesn't help anybody if we're struggling. If we're going to go out of business, it's not going to help anybody have a bigger impact on the world. So then who has been the most impactful person in feeding your drive to do good and make an impact? Oh, man, there's so many people along the way that I can think of. Because again, after I, well, I'll go back then to Donna Dees Thomas's, who was the co-founder of the Millie Mom March, because that's where it started. We had not started the company specifically thinking we want to do good in the world. We just wanted to build websites for people who needed websites and were willing to pay for it. It was not so... Uh, Altruistic. <laughs> it wasn't, wasn't thought... Of, you know, we were starting a company. We wanted to make money. We were, we were young yeah. and, and just wanted to build something. Yeah. And the fact that we were then able to do something so meaningful right off the bat and having that opportunity really opened our eyes to what was possible and the power of what we were doing. And because of the success we had with that particular project, we were able to have so many more opportunities in the nonprofit space, working with different causes, with different charities. That gave us a connection to so many other people who spend their lives, devote their time and energy to trying to make the world better. And that has really become what our company has therefore been all about. So, so yeah, I'll, I'll go back all the way back to the beginning and, and Donna. That's amazing. Then Scott, when you're having a bad day or you're in a negative headspace, what do you do to get yourself out of that funk? A few things that I have found work pretty well for me. There's a, a meditation app that I've used called 10% Happier. Uh, I've been pretty happy with. <laughs> uh, that's done pretty well for me. I'll usually, if I'm really in a funk, I'll try to take a break from working and go do something that I enjoy just for myself. So maybe I'll sit down at the piano for a little bit, or uh, I'll go read a book. But I'll try to disconnect and remind myself that I and, and, and everyone I work with, we're all just trying to do our best. We're trying to make the world better. We're just, I'm just one person. And I'm a human being. I have my, my strengths. I have my flaws. And not everything I do is going to make people happy. And so I just need to be okay with that. I need to accept that. If I make a real mistake, 
then I own up to it and I will strive to improve and do better. But oftentimes it's not that, it's that you're being pulled in a lot of different directions at once. You can't get to everything in the time that other people want necessarily. And other people have different priorities from you. And so you can't always satisfy all the people that in an ideal world you'd love to be able to satisfy all the time. But that's okay. That's okay. And if you let yourself get to the point of feeling completely burnt out, of having you know, huge anxiety, panic attacks, and I've, look, I've experienced all of these things along the way, you're not helping anybody. You're certainly not helping yourself. You're not helping your family, those closest to you, your loved ones, and you're not helping your clients. And ultimately, you need to keep yourself strong and healthy and at your best because you never know when the world's really going to need you. I love that. And Scott, what book do you find yourself recommending to people most often? So recent ones that I've been reading that I found really interesting that I think would be interesting for your audience, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. I found Mindset by Carol Dweck pretty interesting recently. Donald Miller's Story Brand is pretty good. So these are all these are all books that anyone who wants to build something entrepreneurially would benefit from. Awesome. And then last question in the impact round, what is the best piece of advice related to success that you would give our listeners? You can't do it alone. You are going to be tempted as a, you know, if you're a type A, you know, I, I jump in with both feet and I, I think I do everything better than anyone else I might hand it off to kind of person. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs are like that. You can't scale by yourself. When you first start out, of course, you're going to do things on your own. But ultimately, you have to have people around you that are supporting what you do. And your biggest long-term skill that you're going to need to learn is how to be a leader and how to build an effective team if you want to be more than just a solopreneur. Scott, as you know, here on the show, we have what I like to call the do well and do good challenge. So this is where we encourage our listeners who want to give back to contribute to the nonprofits that are nominated by our guests. Can you tell us what organization you'll be nominating and why? So I'm going to nominate a uh, client of ours, actually, VH1 Save the Music Foundation. And VH1 Save the Music Foundation is an organization that is fighting against this recent trend in America of music education being the first thing cut when there are budget issues. There are so many studies that show that students who get a music education learn more and do better across the board, not just in music. But it's even more than that because I can think back to my own experience. Music was a huge part of my life growing up, huge. My entire social life centered around my interest in music. And so thinking about those opportunities and what it meant for me personally, it comes down to this. Every single kid deserves to have a music education, period. It is so important for our souls, for our communities, for, our, for just for the growth of our kids. And the fact that this is one of the first things that gets cut 
when there are budget issues is very sad. So they are working to build and improve music programs in schools throughout the country. Awesome. Well, we will link in the show notes to VH1 Save the Music Foundation. And then lastly, Scott, before we say goodbye, where can our listeners go to learn more about you, about Abstract Edge, and of course, the latest launch of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab? So our website, which has a little bit of a shoe cobbler's children issue going on right now, where we just never get around to updating our own site, but it is at abstractedge.com. So you can check that out there. As far as the Nonprofit Leadership Lab goes, if, if you know you're interested you can jump on the wait list right now. It'll open again in a little over a month. Uh, if you go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com, you can click on a button to join the wait list. But I would suggest if this is an interest of yours to sign up for Joan Gary's free upcoming workshop, How to Build a Thriving Nonprofit, which starts on October 16th. And you can join, register for that at thrivingnonprofit.org. Thank you so much for joining us today, Scott. It's been so much fun to have you. My absolute pleasure. All right, everyone, that's our show. Now, before I sign off, if you work for a nonprofit, be sure to go to thrivingnonprofit.org. The Nonprofit Leadership Lab that you heard Scott talk a little bit about, it is currently open now, and there's a free online workshop that only runs until October 25th. That's this Thursday. So head to thrivingnonprofit.org to reserve your spot for that workshop. Now, if you would like to participate in the Do Well and Do Good Challenge, there are two ways you can do that. The first is by contributing to any of the nonprofits nominated by our guests, including the VH1 Save the Music Foundation. If you do that, send a screenshot of your receipt to challenge at dowellanddogood.co. Your donation will be included in our monthly tally of the tangible impact this podcast is having. The second way you can participate is by voting. See, each month at the beginning of the month on the 1st, we host a vote inside of our free Facebook community to determine which of the nonprofits nominated that I will then donate 10% of my advertising agency's income to. It's an awesome way to make your voice heard. So if you'd like to participate, head over to dowellanddogood.co backslash Facebook to join the group. I'll see you there and thanks so much for listening.